From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Far north in winter, almost everything is white. The snow, the ice, even the polar bears and baby harp seals shine in the natural brilliance. But the environment is anything but pristine for creatures of the Arctic, including humans. Studies now show that the bodies of native Arctic dwellers have levels of toxins that astonished researchers. The chemical concentrations were just off the charts, literally off the charts. The technician thought the samples must have been tainted in transit. He couldn't figure out why they'd be so high. These Arctic moms had seven times more PCBs in their milk than the milk of moms in Canadian cities. And it was just astounding to these people. They had no idea that levels that remote would be that high. Contamination of the Arctic this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. At the top of the world, about 650,000 people inhabit the Arctic regions of Canada, Russia, and Greenland. They're called the Inuit, and for thousands of years they've hunted seal and whale in a harsh expanse that's colored by white and blue. Now, one might think that people who live in the wild and are so close to the land and the ice and nature, they'd be free of the pollution that plagues much of industrial society. But as our guest today, Los Angeles Times reporter Marla Cohn, came to realize as she sojourned among the Inuit, these people have been severely poisoned by their modern neighbors to the south. And the Inuit of Greenland have the highest concentrations of industrial chemicals and pesticides found in any humans on Earth, levels so extreme that some of their breast milk and tissues could even be classified as hazardous waste. You see, the very natural lifestyle of the Inuit exposes them to the toxic industrial chemicals that migrate up the marine food chain. Um, What happens is the molecules of PCB that leach from old electric equipment, factories, or landfills can wind up in little fish in the ocean, and then they're eaten by bigger fish and bigger fish and so on up the food chain, with the poisons concentrating at each step right into the bodies of seals and whales, the traditional diet of the Inuit. And that same concentration up the food chain happens with other synthetic and toxic chemicals, including uh, pesticides, solvents, and mercury from power plants. Marla Cohn is here now to discuss her reporting. Welcome, Marla. Thank you, Steve. So, Marla, tell me, uh, just where did you go on your expeditions and what did you find? I imagine I've been to places that 99.99% of the world will never visit. Very remote areas, way far north. Connacht, Greenland, which is the northernmost civilization on Earth, parts of Alaska, the north slope of Alaska, northern parts of Canada. I've traveled throughout the Arctic. So what's it like? What's it look like in these Inuit villages up there at the top of the earth? Oh, it's amazingly isolated. You just see huge towering icebergs bigger than any skyscraper. It's really hard to get any sense of perspective in space. Everything is white. It blends in with the horizon. You see... Things that look so close are actually so far away. So when we headed by dog sledge to their ancestral hunting grounds, it was this narrow little stretch of blue in the distance. And it was, it turned out it was about 40 miles, 35, 40 miles by dog sledge. Hmm. And you were there, I'm, I'm, I'm taking this is probably the summer, right? You, you, you. I was there in, in June, early June, which is considered their late spring. And it uh, was colder than anything I've ever felt. And I grew up in Chicago, so <laughs> yes, it was very cold, even in summer. 
I, I wonder if you could read from uh, some of your writings that, that you describe this place. Sure. In this hostile and isolated expanse of glacier-carved bedrock and frozen sea, survival means that people live as marine mammals live, hunting like they do, wearing their skins. No factory-engineered fleece compares with the warmth of a sealskin parka, mittens, and boots. No motorboat sneaks up on a whale like a handmade kayak latched together with rope. No snowmobile flexes with the ice like a dog-pulled sledge crafted of driftwood. And no imported food nourishes their bodies, warms their spirit, and strengthens their hearts like the flesh they slice from the flanks of a whale or seal. And uh, another place you write, the Inuits say that their native food strengthens their bodies, warming them from within like a fire glowing inside a lantern. When they eat anything else instead of fire inside, they feel ice. What is it exactly that people are eating, and and how much of it uh, compared to what we eat down here? They are eating narwhal, which is a toothed whale. It has a tusk, a single tusk. It's an unusual type of whale. It's about a ton, each narwhal. They eat a lot of seal, ringed seal. They eat um, anything else they can find. They can eat, they eat seabirds. They eat caribou if they can find it. They eat fish. But most of their diet, at least the meat portions of their diet, are whale and seal. So y- you say they slice off the whale or seal blubber. Can you describe that for me, please? They slice off chunks of the blubber and and the skin. It's called muktuk. They eat it raw. They slice it off with their knives right on the ice there and, and chew on it like we would, I guess, beef jerky. And with seal, it's always cooked. They boil it, and they pull slices, they pull ribs out of the pot that they're boiling it in with their knives. They eat the fat and the meat of the seal. I imagine this is an important social as well as survival ritual and that they must have invited you to partake. I'm wondering oh, what yes, happened. Yeah. I've eaten everything that they eat. In fact, you crave it when you're out on the ice. It's the only thing, like I said, that keeps you warm. I really felt like I could go so much longer and last so much longer in the cold when after I'd eaten some seal. Mm. It's mostly fat, right? I mean, that's blubber, right? Yes. And the skin is pretty tough on a seal. Um, I was or, a, or a whale. And when I asked my translator, I said, how do you chew this stuff? He said, he just looked at me and he said, well, you don't chew it. You just swallow it. <laughs> so you're worried about gaining weight out on this trip, huh? Boy, you burn it out there. You really burn those calories out there. And there's when we were out on the ice, we really did not have any other food. They brought some tea. They bought some bread, some Danish-type spreads. And if you didn't eat seal... And well, you would not survive out there. So this then is the lifestyle that those people have been living for thousands of years. Um, And I I guess it's pretty much the same outwardly as it's been over those last thousands of years. But it turns out that, uh, I guess, inside the very people themselves, there's this substantial change. And I'm wondering, Marla, if you could tell us how the Inuit uh, found out that uh, they had been so heavily contaminated? Well, it came as quite a, quite, a, quite a surprise to these people. Nobody suspected that the Inuit were contaminated. When you look back, it's, it makes sense because they do live so high on the food chain. 
But everybody suspects that these contaminants, PCBs, DDT, mercury, all these various contaminants that we're so familiar with today, have been in the Arctic since the 1940s. They were first detected in seals up there in the 1970s. But nobody paid that much attention because the levels in seals weren't that high. They were lower than they were in Europe and the Great Lakes and those types of places. So nobody really thought much about it. Then in 1987, Dr. Eric DeWaley from Laval University in Quebec was surveying contaminants in breast milk as part of a province-wide look at PCBs and DDT. He just happened at the time to meet a midwife from Nunavik, which is the Arctic portion of Quebec province. And she asked if he wanted to sample milk from women there. He wasn't very interested, but he sort of agreed, thinking it might be useful as a blank, which is a sample which has no detectable pollution levels. But then a few months later, when the first batches of samples arrived, they were glass vials of a half cup of milk from each of 24 women. They arrived by airmail at the lab, and soon DeWaley got a phone call from the lab director saying something was wrong with the milk. The chemical concentrations were just off the charts, literally off the charts. The peaks overloaded the lab's equipment, so it ran off the page. The technician thought the samples must have been tainted in transit. He couldn't figure out why they'd be so high. But upon checking more breast milk, they discovered that the peaks were, in fact, accurate. These Arctic moms had seven times more PCBs in their milk than the milk of moms in Canadian cities. And it was just astounding to these people. They had no idea that levels that remote would be that high. So, Marla, how did these people get uh, contaminated? How, how did they get exposed to this stuff? These chemicals hitch a ride up north. They ride upon northbound winds and currents, and they can sink into the ocean. They get consumed by plankton and then zooplankton and then fish and then seals and then whales and ultimately human beings. Some of this breast milk had what, seven times the amount found typically in, in other Canadian women? This is, uh, uh, and, and in fact, that they didn't initially believe the results of, of, uh, of, of the machines, of the, of the testing. This is, uh, this is astonishing. Right. They thought it was a mistake. They thought there was something wrong with the, not either the equipment or the milk because the levels were coming back so high. So, But then when they realized they were accurate, then DeWaley contacted the World Health Organization and then he heard from an expert there that he had never seen levels so high and that these levels were so high that these women should stop breastfeeding their babies. Whoa. And so DeWaley, who's a public health official, he knew this was ridiculous advice. He said it's the most nutritious food of all, not just in the Arctic but anywhere, and that this area is so remote that what were these mothers supposed to do? There's no formula, even if, the, even if formula was as healthy as breast milk. So he couldn't tell them not to quit breastfeeding. But he knew he couldn't hide the problem either. Now, let's be clear uh, about the mechanisms, Marla, that uh, resulted in, in these uh, poisons being in these women's breast milk. Um, how is it that, that, that they had so much? Well, every step up the food chain, contaminants increase not just twofold, but sometimes twentyfold. So from plankton to zooplankton to fish to seals to whales to humans, there are many steps in that food chain, in that food web, 
and it increases every step of the way so that the that the top predators of the Arctic are the ones who are the most contaminated, and the top predators are human beings. So how much do people there know and understand about what's been found in their uh, in their bodies? It depends where in the Arctic. The government officials and the Inuit in Canada have done an excellent job of communicating the risk. They have meetings up there in very remote communities. They bring the scientists up. Eric DeWaley is still involved in this after 16, 17 years of it, and he goes up at least once a year to talk to the people about what they found. But we're talking about very technical stuff here, and we're talking about a food source for these people which has so many health benefits, not just cultural benefits. Their art revolves around it, their hunting, their storytelling. Everything about life up there revolves around the hunting of whale and seal. And they have typically been very healthy people because of their diet. It's full of nutrients. It's full of iron. They can get virtually everything they need from these marine foods, especially omega-3 fatty acids, which are good for your heart. They have almost no cases of heart disease up in the Arctic because of this. So when scientists come up and they tell them there's contaminants in their food, they not only don't have very many good choices, there's some stores, but the food is usually stale. You can find boxes of cereal that are years old, and they don't want to eat this stuff, and it's not good for their health anyway. Marla Cohn's a reporter with the Los Angeles Times. She's spent time among the Inuit people of the Arctic, tracing the migration of industrial chemicals like PCBs. And we'll continue our conversation in just a moment. I'm Steve Kerwood, and you're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and with me is Los Angeles Times reporter Marla Cohn. She traveled to the way far north with the Inuit, tracing the migration of the toxic industrial chemicals like PCBs. And uh, just before the break, Marla, you were telling me about the first breast milk testing, which showed that Inuit women had, what, PCB levels in their breast milk that were seven times higher than women in Canadian cities south of the Arctic region. And you were also saying that for the Inuit, other foods are really unavailable. So even if they were inclined to alter their traditional diet, they couldn't get them. So tell me, what are some of the human harms that may be coming from these exposures? Well, the effects are pretty subtle that scientists have been able to find. They've found effects, and the effects are in the children, because what happens is that the mother passes this load of chemicals to her baby in the womb, mostly in the womb, but also through breast milk. They can be subtle. They seem to be subtle. It's effects on their developing brain. It could affect their memory, vocabulary, uh, other cognitive skills but also their immune system. It could weaken their immunity, and there are a lot of illnesses in the Arctic, a lot of ear infections especially, which can cause to hearing loss. And so scientists say these contaminants could be an explanation for the high disease rates in the Arctic among children. So what you're saying is that um, one of the things these chemicals can do is is, um, impair immune systems, and there are a number of of diseases that they're seeing uh, around hearing. What specifically... um, are they seeing? They're mostly concerned about infections, respiratory infections, and ear infections, otitis. The rate of otitis or ear infections is very high in Arctic children. Now, what about brain development? In in the United States, um, there have been studies that show that um, 
children of, of, uh, of mothers who are exposed to things like PCBs tend to have uh, some differences in their intelligence and also in their um, emotional steadiness. Um, some work out of the Great Lakes. Um, anything like that showing up in these children of the Arctic? Yes, there have been similar studies in the Arctic, although they're smaller studies, fewer people. The logistics of this is very difficult to study these children. They have found similar effects from PCBs in the Inuit children of Canada. They found some memory-type issues in infants. What kind of they're still looking. What kind of studies did they do exactly? Do you know? Well, they did one study of 11-month-old babies in Nunavik in Canada, and they repeatedly sh- showed them a picture, and researchers recorded how readily these babies could recognize images they'd already seen. This is a pretty standard test of measuring a child's IQ, a baby's IQ. And the infants with high amounts of PCBs in their bodies were 10% less likely to recognize the images than the infants with low PCB levels. I'm also wondering if um, people behave any differently. Uh, Some of these chemicals uh, are considered to be neurotoxins and can affect people's uh, uh, emotional uh, affect as well as their intelligence. What what things are being seen, if any, along these lines in terms of, say, learning disabilities or, or even delinquency? There's been no studies of that to date, any of the behavioral issues. And the neurological issues are pretty tricky to try to study in, in the Arctic. Not only are there logistical issues of getting enough children but there's also the issues, other social issues that could play into a child's intelligence. The, uh, any drinking by the mother, drinking alcoholism is very high in the Arctic. And they do say that the neurological effects they found on these infants are similar in scope to what they would expect if a mother had been drinking moderate amounts of alcohol. In other words, the effect is about the same. Just eating their foods their natural traditional foods can have the same effect as if they were drinking while pregnant. Um, now I also understand that you've been looking at what's happening to some of the largest predators in the Arctic, aside from people, and that at, at one point you actually were tracking polar bears in some of the Norwegian islands, way, way up there, far off the north, northern coast of, of Norway. Um, what was it like uh, uh, being with uh, some of these scientists that, who know how to find polar bears? These scientists are an amazing, hardy crew. They take their life in their hands to to do this type of work. There's a man named Andy DeRocher who's now working for Canada, who every spring they would spend a full month going up in helicopters in these Norwegian islands called Svalbard. And they're up there tracking these polar bears, tranquilizing them, landing in their helicopter, and taking their fat and blood samples so they can see how contaminated they are. They found some very weird things happening with those polar bears. There's a whole, there seems to be a whole missing generation of mothers from about 15 to 20 years ago. They just don't seem to be around, and they're not sure why. They think that perhaps they're not denning, they're not having cubs, so there could be fertility issues regarding the PCBs in these polar bears. First of all, what's in their blood? What are they finding in their blood? PCBs is the highest contaminant. That's the most problematic one. There are 
about 200 chemicals in the polar bears, but PCBs are the ones that are considered the biggest problem. And what do they do to the to the hormones, to the natural chemicals in the in the bears? They certainly mess up the hormones. Their testosterone levels are lower. They also affect the thyroid. And thyroid hormones are what help the brain develop. Sometimes these chemicals are linked to to changes in uh, the the, the phys- physical sexual organs of, of animals. Um, what, if anything, along those lines is showing up in polar bears? They have found over the past few years a small number of half-male, half-female um, mothers. They're, some of them are still able to have cubs, but they do have like a... They have some male reproductive parts and some female reproductive parts. I'm not sure I'd want to check that on a polar bear. <laughs> they, the scientists did show it to me. I couldn't tell the difference, frankly, but they could. And uh, so the polar bear at this point is sedated. Um, what do they do? Yes. Yes, they sedate, they sedate the adults. They fire tranquilizer guns from the helicopter. We're about 10 feet off the ground. The helicopter is spinning. There's snow flying. It's just an amazing thing. It really feels like that helicopter is crashing, not landing. These are amazingly skilled pilots up there. Usually they're, they have a mom and some cubs. This is denning time. They just, they just came out of the dens. So when the mother is, is down, they will land, and these cubs are four months old, and very few human beings have seen cubs in the wild that are that young. They're adorable. They're about 40 pounds, 35, 40 pounds. They'll lick your fingers. They, they have never seen a human being before, and they're sort of wondering why their mother is snoozing there when all this, is, this excitement is happening. At this point, they're teddy bears, huh? Yeah, they're amazing. They're just wide-eyed. And and then they do have to, um, they, they sample their blood. They try to take it easy on the cubs. But then they tranquilize them before they take off in the helicopter because they don't want the cubs to wander off without the mom. At this point, they cannot fend for themselves. And in a way, Marla, I take it that the story of the polar bears is similar to the initial discovery of what's in the Inuit breast milk. Uh, in, in your articles, uh, you wrote that the Canadian researcher, this gentleman you were with, Andrew DeRocher, had what, wanted to study polar bears in Norway because he thought that there would be a, a pure virgin, if you will, population. Uh, but I guess it didn't turn out that way. Right. It's like a carbon copy of what happened with the human breast milk. He really wanted to go to Svalbard because it's in the middle of nowhere, Nobody expected to see high contaminant levels. It was a population of bears that was not hunted, unlike in Canada and some other areas. And so he was pretty shocked when he arrived and he saw these high contaminant levels and these hermaphroditic bears and these other problems. This is what may be happening with the bears, and you've told us some about what's happening with people, but talk to me a little bit about the options here. I mean, what do people do if they want to eat something different in many villages. Um, Doesn't sound to me like they have many options, frankly. And that's the dilemma. They don't really have many options, at least healthy, nutritious options. They can go to their little village store. There will be imported foods there. In Greenland, it would be Danish food. In Canada, in Nunavik and Nunavut, it would be Canadian food. There are options, but they're expensive. They're processed foods. They're not good for their hearts. They're not good nutritionally. So 
most Arctic experts tell the Inuit to keep eating their traditional foods. There has been an effort in Nunavik in Canada to try to get people to eat more Arctic char, a fish which is much lower on the food chain and, and full of good fatty acids, rather than beluga whale, which is very high on the food chain. And what about the young people? How much do they eat compared to the way their elders do? The young people eat far less traditional foods than older people, and that's just a fact of modernization. It really doesn't have much to do with the contaminant loads. If young people are eating far less traditional foods, I wonder if this uh, doesn't end up helping the, the question of contamination. The contaminants probably will decrease over time. There are already Many of them already are decreasing, like PCBs. Others are increasing, like mercury. But if young people do eat more imported foods and stop eating their traditional foods, yes, their contamination levels will go down, but that does not mean their health will improve. If they're eating a lot of processed foods, you're talking about heart disease and diabetes and other problems. Now, some would say that climate change is, is related in that uh, people in the Arctic are seeing the effects of it a lot more rapidly than other places on the planet, and this too comes from industrialized society. Um, it sounds to me like these people are sort of having a double whammy. As I understand it, the ice is, is shrinking there. Certainly the thickness of it is shrinking in the in the high Arctic. This has That has to affect their ability to hunt and also the conditions for uh, some of their prey. Uh, and they have these chemicals as well uh, to deal with. Yes, absolutely. And that is something that is more visual for them, more tangible. They see the melting of the ice. They know it's harder to find their prey. And that is probably more of a concern for them than the contaminants because these contaminants are invisible. They do not, cannot see them, not sure they believe it, but they're there. Um, Marla, before we go, um, this is very difficult to look at. Um, question of people and animals really under assault from from uh, chemicals. Um, what uh, what are the ways out? What are people doing to try to remedy this? Oh, I guess I would have to say they know how to survive the Arctic. They've learned it through countless generations. They've been through bad times before. Settlers brought horrible plagues and diseases to them a couple centuries ago, and they've survived that. I do believe that they will survive this. This is probably one of the worst environmental injustices in the world, the wor one of the worst that I've come across. People who have no power over what is happening to their culture and their diet and their health. But the Arctic people have the will to survive. Martha Cohn is a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. She's working on a book. You don't have a title for the book yet, Marla. No, I don't. But when it comes out, um, it'll be about this subject, about the time that she spent uh, in the high Arctic. Thanks so much for taking this time with me today. Thank you, Steve.
Five electric power companies from across the country have announced dramatic cuts in emissions of carbon dioxide to help stem global warming. That's the kind of voluntary action on climate change favored by President Bush, who backed away from a campaign pledge to cap emissions of the greenhouse gas. But the power companies also voice support for mandatory limits on CO2, the kind of regulation the president has repeatedly rejected. Jeff Young reports from Washington on this change in the business climate. Roger Duncan's from Texas. He's in the energy business, and he's traveled to Washington to talk about big government and global warming. So today we join the World Wildlife Fund in supporting mandatory carbon controls on all utilities. Not quite what you'd expect from deep in the heart of Texas, where Duncan is vice president of Austin Energy. Austin is among five power companies and utilities publicly voicing support for a government cap on carbon dioxide. In a program arranged by the World Wildlife Fund, the companies also pledged to dramatically cut CO2 output over the next 15 years by increasing efficiency or using more renewable energy. That regulatory approach to climate change is quite different from what another former energy businessman from Texas proposes. President Bush prefers voluntary programs to reduce CO2. Duncan says that's not enough. We reached the conclusion that the voluntary efforts that uh, all of us were participating in and other utilities were participating in, that those voluntary efforts were just not sufficient uh, to attain the type of reductions that we felt were necessary to address the problem. Duncan sees voluntary programs as a business-as-usual approach that will not reduce CO2 levels. Utilities from Sacramento, California, Burlington, Vermont, and Waverly, Iowa also signed on, as did FPL Group of Florida. FPL is among the country's biggest power companies, with plants in 24 states. Vice President Randy LeBeau says it was a bottom-line decision. We think that being cleaner, producing clean energy for our customers, preparing for the future and mitigating those risks is the way to, to build a good business and be competitive in the marketplace. Improvements in efficiency can be the cheapest way to meet growing power demand, especially compared to the cost of building new power plants. The World Wildlife Fund's Rebecca Eaton says there's also a growing realization among business leaders that some kind of carbon cap is probably coming. Eaton says power companies can't plan effectively until they know what form it will take. My sense from speaking with companies, these and other electric power companies behind closed doors, is that they really are seeking business certainty. And they want to know what the future regulatory requirements are going to be so they know how to invest properly. But most power companies are not ready for regulation. The Edison Electric Institute represents about 200 power companies, producing 70 percent of the country's electricity. Edison Electric spokesperson Dan Reedinger says mandatory cuts might work for companies using hydro, wind, or natural gas. But carbon-intensive coal provides half the country's electricity. Uh, every company, every power company wants business certainty. But imposing a carbon cap that the vast majority of power companies simply cannot meet, other than by taking drastic action in terms of fuel switching, which really may not be feasible, that's not the kind of certainty that we need. Readinger says his member companies debate this issue, but agree that voluntary emissions cuts are the way to go until new technology can reduce CO2. Austin Energy's Duncan says he'll probably take some heat from fellow power producers for breaking ranks on the carbon cuts, but he predicts it won't be long before others follow his lead. 
I believe that uh, in the 10 to 20 year time frame uh, that all utilities are going to have to do what uh, Austin Energy and a few other utilities are doing today in terms of investments in energy efficiency and renewables. Uh, I believe that their own customers will be demanding those types of programs from their utilities. World wildlife officials expect more power companies to join the call for a CO2 cap, enough, they hope, to inspire some change in the political climate as well. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Coming up, public safety and official accountability in coal country. We have a special investigative report, so stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR Stations and Aveda, an earth-conscious beauty company committed to preserving natural resources and finding more sustainable ways of doing business. Information available at Aveda.com. The Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12. The Annenberg Foundation and the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities on the web at WKKF.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Coming up, public safety and official accountability in coal country. We have a special investigative report. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu. For a number of years, scientists have suspected that clouds carry more pollution across the sky than wind alone. Now, a new study by NASA scientists demonstrates this is true. Researchers took air samples of cloudy and clear air during 20 flights near the coastline of Asia. They checked for pollutants such as carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and methane, and they found almost a third more pollutants in the cloud cover than in the clear. Scientists believe this occurs because human activities like burning fuel for heat or industrial purposes emit such pollutants as carbon monoxide. Cold fronts move in and lift warm, polluted air up. This same lifting of warm air causes the cloud formations, so the pollution of air is lifted right into the clouds. The discovery that clouds carry a heavier load of pollution is important in understanding regional flow of contaminated air. Recently, satellites have begun to monitor the flow of pollutants such as ozone and carbon monoxide, but the satellites are unable to get as accurate a reading when blocked by cloud cover. So researchers conclude that based on this study, both satellites and actual air testing will be necessary to monitor the flow of pollution from one area to another. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jennifer Chu. Last November, Living on Earth interviewed mine safety official Jack Spadaro. He's the whistleblower who alleges that officials from the Bush administration obstructed the investigation into one of the worst environmental catastrophes in the history of the southeastern United States, the Martin County coal slurry spill of October 2000. Mr. Spadaro was placed on administrative leave last summer, and the U.S. Department of Labor has taken steps to fire him. But now, some members of Congress are looking for answers about the role the government has played in his dismissal and about the coal slurry investigation itself. Philip Babbage has our report. It's a crisp day in Inez, Kentucky. Trucks hauling coal, gray-stained rigs known as coal buckets, wend their way up a narrow country road in regular intervals. Their payload is from the Martin County Coal Company, just down the road. Monroe Cassidy used to work for Martin County Coal in the preparation plant. That's where they wash the raw coal. Yeah, they're running the coal, and you can see you 
smokestack coming out where the heat dryer and scrubber and everything's working. You can see the dozers in the coal pile and coal coming out the stacker tubes. Yes, it's a typical day at a coal mine. In the preparation plant, the rock coal goes through a series of chemical processes to separate out dirt and rock. The excess material, water, and chemicals, the slurry, is then pumped into an impoundment. The Martin County Coal Slurry Impoundment is 70 acres in size. That's more than half a mile long and about three and a half football fields across. It has a capacity of more than two billion gallons. Part of the lagoon is situated above underground mines. In the early morning hours of October 11, 2000, the bottom of the slurry impoundment broke into one of the mines. The slurry came down this stream right here we're looking at right here. A torrent of sludge and water blasted through about two miles of underground mines until the flood punched out of a mine opening in the side of a mountain and began flooding Coldwater Creek. Another pressure buildup resulted in a second flood on the Wolf Creek side of the impoundment. Residents described the flood as a black lava flow with enough density to raise bridges as it crested the creek banks. Again, Monroe Cassidy. When it came out on one side of the mountain, it shot plumb across to the other side and knocking big timbers down. So with all that force uh, coming out, you can just imagine what it would look like coming down through here, nothing but black, you know. It smelled terrible. It smelled like, you know, chemicals, like, like hydraulic. You know, nothing smells any worse than hydraulic fluid. Janice Maynard lives on Coldwater Creek. The smells from the day of the accident are still fresh in her mind. So are some vivid scenes. One memory in particular is of five turtles lying on top of the slurry. When I saw all the big turtles on the surface there, you could see every one of them, their shells, big, big turtles. And they were, you know, they were dead, though, you know. More than 300 million gallons of the slurry fouled about 100 miles of waterways, causing severe property damage and annihilating wildlife. So what went wrong at Martin County Coal? Jack Spadero is an expert on coal slurry impoundments and was on the federal investigation team that examined the Martin County disaster. It was a 1972 slurry dam accident at Buffalo Creek in West Virginia that has defined Spadero's career in mine safety. 125 people were killed and 4,000 left homeless in that accident. At 23 years of age, Spadera was tapped to be the staff engineer in the investigation of the Buffalo Creek disaster. He spent the next 30 years studying rock and earth structures and working as a government regulator. When he first heard about the Martin County catastrophe, Spadero feared the worst. I was concerned that we were having 30 years after Buffalo Creek a failure of this sort, of this magnitude. I knew what kind of tragedy could result if we didn't do a good job of investigating and finding out what really caused this. Federal regulations require at least 150 feet of rock and dirt lie between the bottom of a slurry impoundment and an underground mine. Spadero's investigative team discovered only 15 feet. Frankly, I was surprised that they were operating because I, I kind of thought that they maybe stopped operations after the previous failure. Larry Wilson was a lead federal mine safety engineer following a rupture at the Martin County Coal Impoundment in May 1994 that dumped 100 million gallons of slurry. He surveyed the damage and made a list of nine critical recommendations, including fortifying the impoundment and underground mines before Martin County Coal could continue to dump slurry there. I didn't think that they would be able to continue operating unless they did seal these things, pretty much knowing full well that they wouldn't seal them because it would cost too much to do so. I guess I was trying to backdoor into 
making sure that the site was never used again. Massey Energy, the parent company of Martin County Coal, did not respond to repeated requests for an interview. But Bill Kaler, president of the Kentucky Coal Association, which represents the state's coal operators, says Massey did all it could to prevent another accident. It's real easy to say on hindsight, oh, we should have known. At the time, they thought they were doing things correctly. Uh, I don't think anybody felt like they were not reacting properly. But documents obtained through Freedom of Information Act requests show that district officials for the U.S. Mine Safety and Health Administration, MSHA, and Martin County Coal did not comply with Wilson's recommendations, even though the company continued to use the impoundment and add to its capacity. MSHA officials declined to comment for the story. Wilson's June 1994 report was unearthed in late 2000, when then-head of MSHA, David McAteer, a Clinton appointee, ordered a complete review of his agency's files on Martin County Coal. By virtue of the fact that we had a second failure, uh, it means that our response was inadequate. There was no question that the uh, district managers uh, could have been more stringent and more demanding of the company to uh, take further steps to increase the impoundment, safety, and security. Spadero and other investigation team members felt they were beginning to collect enough evidence to issue Massey Energy citations for willful and criminal negligence. Both the Wilson memo and a critical independent engineering report were red flags to Spadero that Martin County Coal was at fault. The company knowingly continued to pump slurry into a reservoir that was underlain by mine workings, and there was a thin soil and rock cover that was known because there had been a previous breakthrough. And the company submitted maps or drawings that misrepresented the uh, underground conditions. In addition, it looked as though the team's own agency, MSHA, a wing of the Department of Labor, was going to be held accountable as well. But that all changed when George W. Bush moved into the White House. I, George Walker Bush, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will Within days of President Bush's inauguration, a new team leader, Tim Thompson, was brought in to head the Martin County Coal investigation. According to Jack Spadaro and other members of the investigation team who spoke on condition of anonymity, Thompson dramatically narrowed the scope of the investigation. Witnesses were dropped. MSHA's culpability in the matter was taken off the table. What's more, says Spadaro, Thompson was in close contact with President Bush's new MSHA chief, Assistant Secretary of Labor Dave Lariski, particularly when mine safety engineer Larry Wilson's 1994 recommendations were discussed. And he would come back and he would say, well, we'll we're going to take this section of the report out. We're not going to have any reference to the 1994 recommendations by the Technical Support Division. By April of 2001, Spadaro was fed up with what he saw as an emerging cover-up. He tendered his resignation from the accident investigation team and filed a complaint with the Department of Labor's Office of the Inspector General, alleging that Bush administration officials were obstructing the team's work. Spadaro also spoke out publicly when MSHA released its final accident investigation report in October 2002, which cited Martin County Coal for two minor violations with fines totaling $110,000 and left MSHA district officials completely off the hook. One of those citations was dropped and the penalty for the other was reduced, and Massey is now looking at a $5,500 fine. The final accident report said the cause was an inadequate berm of coal refuse around the perimeter of Martin County's impoundment. There was a lot of pressure on all the folks on the team to kind of go along with the program. 
and get this report out and, you know, make it as uh, smooth as possible and don't argue about, you know, the causes of the accident. Some eight months later, on June 4th, 2003, Spadaro was placed on administrative leave. Right now, he's awaiting final word as to whether he will retain his job as superintendent of MSHA's training facility. His superiors are accusing him of a raft of misbehaviors unrelated to the investigation, including abusing his authority and failing to follow instructions. Spadaro says that he's being targeted for his whistleblowing activities. I've been in government 27 years in federal government, and I was in state government five or six years. This is the most uh, lawless administration I've ever seen. They run roughshod over anybody who might uh, try to uh, get them to obey the laws. The Department of Labor Inspector General exonerated MSHA of any wrongdoing in its handling of the Martin County coal investigation. But whole sections of the IG's report are blanked out, and some say it raises more questions than it answers. Some members of Congress are trying to get to the bottom of the whole affair, including the pending dismissal of Jack Spadaro. It's a political item which meant it had to come down from the top. U.S. Representative Major Owens of New York and two other Democratic members of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce are taking a closer look at Jack Spadaro's case. They've requested that U.S. Secretary of Labor Elaine Chao provide them critical documents and information to help them assess whether Spadaro is being wrongly terminated. So far, says Representative Owens, their investigation has been stonewalled. Somebody had to get to the secretary, and the secretary had to receive that order from some political uh, forces that did not want to see this happen for their own various uh, uh, reasons in terms of uh, cowing to Modern County Coal Company or they had uh, felt some kind of indebtedness to them. Department of Labor spokesperson Ed Frank denies that Secretary Chow has had a hand in the Spadaro case or the investigation. He says that the department is in the process of getting the documents to Representative Owens. The secretary played absolutely no role in the personnel issue with Mr. Spadaro, who's a mid-level employee in West Virginia. And the department's fine against Martin County Coal is the largest that's allowed under federal law and the facts of the case. While it's unclear whether Bush administration connections to the mining industry have anything to do with the investigation or personnel actions taken against Spadaro, it's probably worth noting that Massey Energy is a major contributor to the Republican Party, and President Bush's top leadership in MSHA is stacked with former mining executives. Assistant Secretary Lariski was an executive with Energy West Mining. Deputy Assistant Secretary John Carell worked for Amex Mining and Peabody Coal. One MSHA investigator told me, quote, The investigation didn't have to do with just Martin County Coal. The bigger question is, should slurry impoundments be allowed over old mines? That would have been addressed in our report, end quote. With an estimated 240 such impoundments across the country, the coal industry had a lot riding on MSHA's report. The question of safety seems very real when you stand below a slurry dam. A typical rock and earth structure, about 250 feet tall, stretches to the top of a valley mouth to hold back slurry at Independence Coal, another Massey subsidiary based near Whitesville, West Virginia. A truck driving across the top of the dam looks the size of a toy Hot Wheels vehicle. Directly across a creek is an elementary school where 200 students are enrolled. Freedom Williams, an organizer with the advocacy group Coal River Mountain Watch, shudders at the thought of a slurry accident here. I, w I would really hesitate to say what would happen to all those students because no one knows what, what to do. The only thing you know to do is run. This impoundment is just one concern for communities in and around Whitesville. 
What looms most ominously for them are plans to make the largest impoundment in the country at Brushy Fork. It now holds 5 billion gallons of slurry, and according to Cold River Mountain Watch, it's scheduled to hold up to 9 billion gallons. Its dam is 950 feet tall, and it sits on top of underground mines. With such a massive impoundment in their backyard, Frida Williams says it's important for regulatory agencies to be vigilant. We just want the uh, coal mining to be done legally and responsibly. We're not against coal mining. And that's been Jack Spadaro's philosophy since his early days at Buffalo Creek. His fate is now in the hands of his bosses at MSHA, who are weighing the superintendent's appeal of his termination notice. Spadaro doesn't expect any sympathy, though. He's levied charges that MSHA's top officials are handing out lucrative, no-big contracts to friends and associates. For Living on Earth, I'm Philip Abich. Support for our story on Jack Spadaro and the Martin County coal slurry spill was provided by the Fund for Investigative Journalism. And for this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week, it's not easy to track the way water moves underground, but researchers at Ohio State University have come up with a clever computer model that sheds new light on how pollution reaches drinking water supplies and may prevent it from happening in the first place. The kind of model that was done here, the level of sophistication and how the analysis was done will absolutely have application to many other cases out there, and unfortunately there are too many of these cases. There's in the community that doesn't have one or be under the threat of having one. When science meets technology, next time on Living on Earth. And between now and then, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. And just a reminder that Living on Earth is giving one listener and a guest the chance to win a spot on our upcoming African safari. To be entered in the sweepstakes automatically, please visit livingonearth.org and become a member. Or mail a 3x5 card with your contact information to 20 Holland Street, Suite 408, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. The drawing is open to all legal residents of the U.S. and Canada aged 18 and up, except those employed by Living on Earth, NPR, or the stations that broadcast this program. All entries must be received by March 1st, 2004. One entry per person, please. The winner will be selected in a random drawing. The estimated value of this prize is $7,000, which includes airfare from New York City. Visit livingonearth.org for details on this exciting trip. Before we go, one last stop in the way-frozen north. Strange and wondrous sounds can happen when giant ice floes bump into each other, as two of them did one day in the Arctic Ocean. Robert Asher was there to record the action for the pulse of the planet. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Our staff includes Nathan Marcy, Susan Shepard, Carly Ferguson, and Tom Simon. We had help this week from Rosalind Fay and the National Radio Project. Al Avery runs our website. Our interns are Christopher Bolick and Nal Taro. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art courtesy of Earth Ear. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, 
organic yogurt, cultured soy, and smoothies. Ten percent of their profits are donated to support environmental causes and family farms. Learn more at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, and the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation. This is NPR National Public Radio.